Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Sasha and I'm a human. And welcome to Too Human for Words. Hi, welcome back. This is the podcast that talks to medical and health professionals and people with lived experience about the things that make us similar in our health struggles that last three months or longer that we can use as powerful information to create better systems, communities and all over quality of life for absolutely everybody. We are in the holiday season. I mean, how? How did that happen? How are we here already? So how are you doing? And I really mean it. How are you? How are you coping with this holiday season? Are you having a good time? Are you able to connect with loved ones? Or is it hard? Are you struggling? And if you are, I just want to tell you I love you. I'm sending hugs. The holiday seasons bring up so much and as much as they're fun they're also a lot and they can be really hard and it is coming to the end of the year which you know can also be a difficult time. I always find that I get to the end of the year and it doesn't matter sort of what's been going on if I've been productive or if I haven't been productive I just I get this wave of anxiety and regret and just despair because I feel like at the end of the year, I've like run out of time to do things that would make myself feel like I've done enough, like I've been productive enough, like I've proved myself to myself enough. And I feel like that feeling is a little bit of the chronic illness grief of not being able to progress my life in the time frame that I wanted to and do the things that I want to do and tick the things off my list that I wanted to. And so these feelings come up around birthdays and Christmas and New Year. And I know that the healthy belief is to be kind, to uh, have compassion with yourself. And at times I can do that. And at other times I'm not very good at it. So if you're feeling that way as well or, or you know, maybe it's even just like loneliness at this time or not feeling heard or seen, I know we're not together, I know I can't see you, but I see you, I hear you and if you're wondering if you're the only one that feels these things, you're not, you're really not alone. We are also coming to the end of another pandemic year, which You know, it's hard to believe in one way because I think we all sort of thought, oh, it'll be done 2021. All right. Nothing really lasts for that long. And it turns out a pandemic works very, very differently to many other things. So that's still happening. And I just wanted to check in with you and see how you're feeling through the pandemic. Are you doing okay? Are you looking after yourself? Are you creating boundaries so that you feel safe? 
I, from an emotional point of view, feel very triggered with the pandemic because it reminds me a lot of my own isolation and how when I was really sick, uh, the world was just moving on without me and moving without me and, and didn't really seem to think it was that serious to be isolated and to not be able to work and socialize and study and all of those things. And then all of a sudden the pandemic came along and all of a sudden the world sort of understood, but I don't know if the world put it in that way of understanding that people have really been through this before, this sense of isolation and and being scared for their health and, you know, having healthcare be maybe a struggle to access. And so I, I, hope that whatever the pandemic is bringing up for you as well that you're able to breathe through it and also know that you're not alone feeling that way too it it has been really hard but sometimes with the world slowing down it can make things a little bit easier too so if that's how you're feeling or if you have other feelings happening you're not alone and feel free to share them. We do have our Facebook group. It is called The Humans of Two Human for Words and it is a safe space for all of us just to hang out, compare notes and support one another and try and lift each other up but also just know that we're not alone. It's just another space for us to just to hang out and connect. So today we are talking to rheumatologist and head of the medical course at Monash University and deputy dean at the Faculty of Medicine. This is Professor Michelle Leach. So I met Michelle Leach doing OSCEs and you will learn what OSCEs are in the interview. But during that time we worked together, uh, we talked about this stuff that I've been working on and what I was so pleasantly surprised about was she was so open to just talking about the medical system and critiquing it and looking at it with some objectivity. And it did surprise me because I have done quite a few of these OSCEs and had the chance to talk to doctors. And quite often, to be honest, some of them were very defensive. And so it was really nice to talk to someone so high up that was actually really happy to critique and and you know look at where I was coming from and I could hear her perspective and it was so so interesting as well as being a medical professional Professor Michelle Leach was also a breast cancer patient not that long ago so we also get her insight there and you know what it was like going from being a professional to a patient to then being a professional again and what sort of insights that gave her. All right, so enjoy the interview. I will have a chat and see you on the other side. Thank you so much for being here. So can you please tell everyone what it is that you do and yeah, what your position is? My area specialty is rheumatology. So I look after people where the immune system is not your friend and sometimes wants to fight a war against parts of the body. It also, of course, is about wear and tear in the body, people with osteoarthritis and so muscle joint and bone problems. Other work that I do is I'm involved in medical education, so I'm head of the medical course at Monash University and involved in shaping the medical course and certainly trying to increase awareness around chronic disease management and patient-centred care and also shared decision-making and things like that, uh, trying to bring some of those things into the modern medical curriculum. Awesome. And so you're 
Dean or Deputy Dean? Uh, So Deputy Dean at the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences, and it's a very large health health sciences faculty that we have with every health discipline here, you know, social work, nursing, uh, medicine, radiation sciences, paramedicine, physio, occupational therapy, so the full gamut of health disciplines as well as medicine, and I'm responsible for the medical course itself, but working as much as I can with those other health disciplines as well around developing curriculum that can be shared across those disciplines. Uh, So we have a collaborative care lead in our faculty who's a physiotherapist, and she's done an incredible job to try to map the shared learning outcomes of all health learners That's been a very important development in the faculty to try to understand the things that we all share for patients with both acute and chronic diseases. Yeah, I find that really exciting because it definitely ties in with what I'm doing with this podcast and where the conversations are coming from. And when I met you, it was just by chance that we were paired together to work together on an OSCE day. Would you mind explaining to everyone what OSCEs are? That's right. So OSCE is uh, an objective structured clinical examination and a lot of health learners have this type of examination. It's not a very good way to find out if someone's going to be able to practice in health if you just do a written paper. Uh, You might have a lot of knowledge in your head, but you have to be able to demonstrate what you know. So OSCEs are a type of exam that is designed to test your ability to demonstrate what you know, either by taking a history or doing an examination. And Sasha, you were acting as a sim patient or a simulated patient. So uh, you learned a role and you learned how to be a patient with a particular condition. And then the student had to come in and either do a history or examination on you. I think you had abdominal pain from memory. Possibly, but yeah. I've done You've so done many. You've done so many. That's I right. <laughs> so sim patients can pretend or manifest um, certain signs and symptoms and the health learner, so it could be a medical student or a nursing student or a physio student or even a social work student, might have to take a history and find out a little bit more about you. So it's much more active way of demonstrating what you know. I came to be a sim patient as a job just through looking for acting work as a performer. And then because all of this stuff that I'm thinking about and working on had been in the back of my mind for a while, I started doing this work and I was like, oh, this is so interesting and fascinating. It's like, you know, seeing under the curtain of this world that I've been trying to understand more. And one of the wonderful things about it is that I've been able to sit down and between the students uh, coming in and out of the room, have these amazing conversations with the examiners who are doctors and working medical professionals. And what I found was so interesting talking to you is that you were so open about looking at the system and what's working, but then what can be better. Look, I think it's also being in an education setting because you you really see the way the world is changing. I mean, medicine has changed so much over centuries, the practice of health, all health, but especially medicine. You know, it always used to be the case that the patient should essentially ask very few questions and be told the diagnosis and the management and off they go and adhere to that or be compliant with that, which is a terrible notion. But the world is changing so much and you know, in good ways. I think it's been described in this excellent book called The Patient Will See You Now, which is a very good book about how there's 
starting to be an end to information asymmetry. So in the old days, you know, I was the professional, I knew everything. The patient was the person with the malady who helplessly knew nothing about the malady. Mm -hmm. But now with smartphones and digital technologies and people actually regardless sometimes of socioeconomic status can actually access information at their fingertips about medical conditions, about genetic testing, about all kinds of things. And there are so many stories in the media about how resourceful patients with diseases have solved problems for themselves or their families. So there is an end of information asymmetry. Patients have a lot more information now at their fingertips and they want to know things. And I think we have to prepare graduates to work more with digitally empowered patients. But by the same token, there are also people all over the world who are very disempowered by virtue of many factors, you know, cultural, social, financial. There are equal number of very, very disempowered people who don't have access to information they need about their health. And so I think the world is certainly changing. I think, therefore, we do need to adapt as health mm -hmm. professionals. And patients are much more interested in making decisions about their own health and being involved in those decisions. And I think that that does lead to safer health care. It does lead to better outcomes. It should lead to better outcomes and it should improve patient safety. And there's a lot of reasons why as an educator, I should be thinking about how can we graduate health practitioners who can practice safely, who are not uh, threatened, I guess, by, by working with patients to solve problems. And you're even seeing this in the research area where trials that are being funded or research that is being funded is the kind of research where there's a very large pool of patients who are partnering on trials and things like that. And a lot of funding bodies are saying, we're not going to fund you unless you can show us that you've been involved in looking at patient-reported outcomes, not just the things that you medical people think are important, but what is it that the patients think is important and are you going to measure those things in your trials? So you're seeing a lot more of this development, I think. The patient voice is becoming something that is much more part of ordinary discourse. So we can't really keep teaching, you know, young medical students the same way that we used to 100 years ago. Otherwise, they will go out into the world very unprepared. When you say uh, patient reported outcomes, how do they collect that information? We might be looking after a disease like lupus and we might be saying that we want to use drug X and trial that against a placebo and we want to get funding to do that trial. And we would say the thing we're interested in is kidney function. We want to know that drug X is going to improve the kidney function better than the placebo. Nowadays, our funding bodies and regulatory bodies are saying, sure, you're showing that the kidney function is improved, but does the patient actually feel better? Mm -hmm. So these are what we call PROs or patient reported outcomes. A classic example of that would be fatigue. We would say this drug makes people better i.e. the kidney function is better. But the patients would say, well, we're still fatigued. So as far as we're concerned, we're not better. And so now a lot of the trial structures and the design of trials is taking into account the patient reported outcome. And it's quite hard now to, to get a trial listed without having something like that included. That sounds like a really big step forward. Mm, mm. And especially after a while of being sick, you start to feel like a professional patient and yes. like you have something yeah. to say from your experience. Well, I think all patients are actually professionals about their own illness. They, yeah. There's no one who knows more about it than they do. When I talk to the medical students, I often say, you know, when you go out into the clinical world of the hospitals after you leave the campus here, 
you'll meet many, many teachers. You'll meet all sorts of different educators and academics, but the people who will teach you the most will be the patients. They are the ultimate teachers and they know their bodies and they know their illness. We have certain expertise, we have certain understandings of disease classifications and diagnosis and how to put things together. What we bring is an objectivity. You know, if, I, if I'm a patient, even though I have all this medical knowledge, I'm useless at looking after myself because I can't be objective about myself. If I'm looking after a patient, that patient is a professional about their own symptoms, what's going on for them, how they're feeling, and their narrative about what's going on is very, very important. And then what I am meant to bring to that is a sort of objectivity. Well, here's everything I know about this, and then here are you, and let's bring that together. But every patient is different, and I think that the art of medicine is around how you put those things together. I think nowadays people or patients are involved in things like, you know, for example, in our collaborative care committee, we have patient advocates from the health service who are belonging to our curriculum committees around chronic illness. We have patients involved in developing educational tools for the medical students. Um, we have patients coming to the building from patient groups like Parkinson's rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, they come in to talk to the students about what it feels like to have those conditions. We have a patient advocate from the nearby health service who welcomes the year one medical students into the course to just sort of talk very early on about the patient journey. You're going to learn a lot about these diseases, but don't, don't forget the patient journey. So I think the more we can inject that into the course, I think the more people will try and remember that the knowledge is very, very important, but the patient story is absolutely critical as well. So it's keeping both things in your mind at the same time. So with the patient advocate, is that someone that's actually gone through an issue with their health or is that someone who has studied patient advocacy? Well, the ones that we've been working with are usually people who have been through serious chronic illness. They're often involved in advising hospital boards as well on patient-centred care or shared decision-making or providing advice to health services about how much the patient experience has been taken into account. Those people are often also useful in education and we do also have a patient advocate on the Medicine Course Advisory Board as well uh, to try to think about how we can, at a strategic level, be uh, mindful of those things. So I think everywhere you can have that, it's, it's good. And most of the times there's a requirement now on many boards for that to be the case. How long has patient advocates been around? I think my awareness of patient advocates, I don't know how long they've really been around, but I feel like for a decade that voice has been strengthening. Yeah. Uh, and around things like electronic medical records or health records, I think there's a very strong patient voice around records that the patient owns and accesses and is open to them in much the same way as it is to the health professionals who record data about the patient. So when we first met, you told me that you'd also been through breast cancer. Mm. Would you mind sharing just a bit about that experience and, and how it's informed then you practicing sure. medicine? Yeah, look, it, it's always the thing, isn't it? I mean, I've been a patient before, but in minor ways, every person's a patient at one time or another or might be. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it stands to reason that uh, as a health professional, you're just going to go through all the usual human things. Um, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer last year and I wouldn't say that it was a shock because, it, you know, it affects one in eight women and you do think to yourself, well, why should I be immune? You know, I thought to myself, okay, this is going to finish me off. I don't want this to finish me off. I'd like to be around a bit longer. And so you go through the usual kind of fear that everyone must go through. 
then I, uh, you know, went through the kind of healthcare maze that people go through, albeit at a more privileged level, because many people go through it, you know, I was sort of going through it in the private system. But the best thing for me was I, I have a fantastic GP. And I think just going to see the GP and taking the GP's advice about each step was the best way to do it rather than try and manage it yourself as a health professional, which is, I think is the worst thing you can possibly do. So I actually had a fantastic journey and just about all of the doctors I had, really all of them were superb and you know, felt very lucky and came out of this well. But the learnings were, firstly, that there were certain people I was involved with and I realised, for example, we have a radiation sciences team here, things like uh, radiation oncology, they teach this here at Monash. And I'd never really got a sense of, I mean, I knew they were very important, but I didn't have a sense of just how much time they spend with patients. A lot of my time was spent with people doing scans on me and imaging on me, like quite lengthy periods of time. And the interpersonal skills of those people were really important in, you know, how my day felt. So I might have quite a brief time with a doctor or a brief time with a nurse or a brief time with a pharmacist. But the people doing scans, I was lying there for quite a while talking to them and I thought they really make a big difference. So I learned a bit about them as people in the team, which was really interesting. I mean, certainly gained an appreciation. I mean, with radiotherapy, this fatigue that sneaks up on you, I mean, you, there's fatigue and fatigue, you know, and I, I thought, whoa, this fatigue is really full on and it's really different. I've always thought, oh, fatigue, snap out of it, you know, just snap out of it. Surely you can just do some exercise and you'll feel better. But I really had a taste of that, I don't know, bubonic fatigue of just laying you right down. And I thought, imagine, you know, these people with chronic disease must feel like. And when they say fatigue, it's a different kind of fatigue, you yeah. know. It really gave me, I think, a better ability to empathise with that concept of fatigue, which I've always thought, mind over matter, just brush that off. The second thing that I think it really helped with was what I had was an acute illness, you know, it had a beginning, a middle and hopefully an end, although there'll always be vigilance. But chronic illness, it just doesn't have a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And the idea that one of the things I really struggled with was, will I be able to get my brain back, you know, to go to work and think straight and function in the workplace? One of my biggest fears was not being able to go back to work. I thought, this is it now, my working life's over, I can't believe it just can't believe it. This is terrible. I, this is not how I thought I would end my working life. I gradually kind of recovered and got back to work and my brain switched on a bit. Still not up to standard, <laughs> I think, but, you know, it'll do. But I thought all of these patients of mine uh, with chronic diseases, that goes up and down. And there are days that they think I can't work today or maybe I'll never work again. So that feeling of just being ill-equipped to return to work or not sure, you know, not being sure how to manage it was something that really hit me. Whenever I go to meetings, at conferences and things, I always go to the health professionals section because often there are people working on things like fatigue. And I've always thought to myself, we just, we just love to unlock that. Mm. Um, if I think if we could get a handle on that fatigue aspect, I think we could really improve the lives of our patients. And so I often go to these things and I notice the people who seem to have the answers are often not the medical people, but often, you know, it might be a psychologist or a social worker or an OT or a physio who've got some great data around fatigue. I mean, recently I went to a presentation at the European, sort of major European rheumatology meeting and an occupational therapy researcher presented just some beautiful work about how just upper limb mobility exercises had improved patient quality of life more than anything, like more than a tablet with a really good effect size. And I thought, oh, that looks good. So 
yeah, look, I think it's just opened my eyes a bit more to how do you manage that fatigue? Yeah, it was an eye opener uh, for, for me. And look, I think I'd always been mindful of it as an issue, but there's nothing like experiencing it yourself to think, imagine if I had this chronically. All the time. All the time. I'd think... I would find it very, very hard. So yes, enormous just respect, I suppose, for my patients and all the patients out there who who just carry on and mm-hmm. keep working and doing what they do uh, in spite of having these chronic diseases. Yeah, it's it's a really big thing, and I think that's where you start to relook at your life. And and so I've got fibromyalgia and ulcerative colitis, mm. and a big part of when I first got diagnosed with fibro, that was a lot longer ago than the colitis, but was reevaluating my quality of life or, you know, what that meant to me Mm. and what that was. And it's still an ongoing thing. It's Mm. still a constant reevaluating. And you you sort of have to, and you have to for yourself. Um, Probably talked about this when we first met, but one of the things that led me here, or probably the thing that led me here, was my mum getting diagnosed with breast cancer and I had had uh, fibro for about eight years at that point and really struggled with validation, struggled to get proper help with it, struggled to also then validate it within myself to think that it was important enough to really do something about and, you know, still having the expectations of what I should be doing and how my life should be and, you know, because this thing, this invisible thing just didn't seem like it sounded bad enough for Mm. me to really Mm. take seriously in a way that would then allow me to help my quality of life. And so a lot of of struggle and then I saw what my mum experienced And I've talked about this before that I went through a phase of becoming very resentful and I didn't understand why at all until I started to unpack that I was seeing her experience a lot of the same symptoms as me, but the validation and everything was just immediate. There is obviously the importance of acute illness and and nothing to bring that down as, as less important, but I thought there's this hole in the system for chronic illness to elevate the importance and the understanding of it. And what you're saying about fatigue is something that I've experienced for years and you go, there must be Mm. something Mm. that you can do about it. Mm. But also the understanding of that grief around you don't know when it will end, you don't know about if it will go into remission or anything and how do we use that as information to say, well, okay, if we're all experiencing these crossovers, like the big picture might be different, but underneath that there's all these crossovers and how do we use that as as information? And I can't remember if I talked to you about this when we first spoke, but one of the things I've always felt would make such a huge difference is like after you get your diagnosis and you leave the doctor's office, if before that they would say, just so you're aware, you're not your label, you're mm. not your diagnosis. And when you leave here, there are so many people who will understand what you're going through, but you don't need to look for someone with the same label to find that person. Yes, that's a really good point, isn't it? That in some ways, chronic diseases are all different, but in some of the most significant ways, they're all the same. Yeah. They all have loss, uncertainty, variable effects on your body that mean that you it affects your function. Fatigue is very common. And also, you're much more caught up in the maze of health. So you all have these 
common features that are very powerful. So I think you're right. I think somebody with rheumatoid arthritis could have a perfectly good conversation with someone with ulcerative colitis and the things they feel are probably quite similar. Their pain Mm. might be in a slightly different place, but their fatigue is the same, frustration might be the same, loss of work or function might be the same. It's actually quite, you're right, it's a bigger group Mm. when you put it that way. And so we don't realise that our community is so much bigger Mm. than we realise. And one of the biggest problems I've felt that obviously I realised the extent was so much bigger than me but was the feeling of isolation and that it's so hard to talk to people about what you're going through and you lose a lot of friends through illness because they don't quite understand and it's hard to put it into words. And isolation I feel like is this huge issue but understanding that there are similarities underneath our diagnosis or label just helps that little bit to go, oh, maybe maybe there is a way out of this mm. isolation. Do you think social media has helped? There's so many more networks and groups on social media now, uh, more in some ways more than we've ever had. But do you think that helps with isolation or do you think people need to come together? Or I mean, I'm speaking as an older yeah, human. I think it helps. I think when I was first sick, for, for a lot of that I was also stuck in bed and couldn't advocate for myself or even think to look at online uh, support groups. But once I started to learn about it, there is this huge community mm. online of people with chronic illness and I think there is this bubbling up of understanding of the crossovers where you can make friends with people with different diagnoses and uh, I think it's also really important to, you know, pull apart that understanding so that we can see that these are also just human issues. It doesn't need to be this segregation of you need to be sick mm. to to have this understanding yeah. or, or this community. Yeah. Yeah. It's a human it's a human struggle. It's, you know, it might have a label or it might be acute at, at different times, but these are things that if you pull apart like anxiety, depression, grief, mm you know, needing help with making food or maybe cleaning or something. These are things that Mm. a lot of people experience. And so I think with social media, it is really massive. I would just like to see it go a bit further and and still see that understanding of beyond the label happen a bit more. And I think some of that is perpetuated by this advertising space that you see for separate illnesses. And it's almost like there's this fight for funding And I completely understand it and I understand why it is, but it's really hard to then go, well, why does one illness look more important than the other when that's not Mm. the case? And when you take it on to a personal level of go, how does that affect the day to day, you know? And and so I, I feel like the education around how do we support each other as, you know, going through difficult times in our lives rather than going through something with a specific label Mm. would be really, Mm. you know, a really important step like campaigns around rather than, for me personally, you know, in in awareness campaigns going, here are my struggles, you know, Mm -hmm. and getting everyone to feel feel really sorry for you and go, this is what I have and this is how I'd like you to support me. Mm. And then if you can donate money, then that's great too. But also Mm. this is like proactive campaigns rather than, you know, I, I think it per- perpetuates the the grief and the discomfort when we just talk about the struggle. It's like all these different conditions fighting for supremacy and maybe each of the illnesses and maladies, they've 
each got a different, slightly different underpinning in terms of the, you know, pathophysiology or the cause of it. But in terms of the symptoms that people feel, there's a lot more shared symptoms, you know, as you say. So it does does make a lot of sense. I mean, even you've mentioned fibromyalgia and fibromyalgia or widespread body pain and tenderness uh, is is an area where because there isn't an abnormal blood test or an abnormal scan result or it's a clinical syndrome that is diagnosable in about 8% of the population at any one time. That's a lot of people. And it coexists with chronic conditions like rheumatoid or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or lupus very commonly. And it has a huge health economic burden. It really does. I mean, the number of medications people are on is increased. If you have fibromyalgia, the health care consumption is higher, the quality of life is lower. And so you can have somebody with rheumatoid, for example, who's doing really well. You can have someone with rheumatoid and fibromyalgia who's doing very, very you know, badly. So these, these things that, as you say, people talk about validation, you know, they aren't as easily validated because there's no measurement, it's mm-hmm. harder to measure, have a quite an enormous impact on people's well-being and quality of life. And certainly at Monash Health Rheumatology, we have Dr. Emma Geimer, who's doing a lot of research into fibromyalgia. And I remember her saying, the thing about fibromyalgia is that we all can go in and out of it. There can be times in our lives where we're a bit fibromyalgic, <laughs> um, and then we can come out of it. Yeah. And then there are other people who are more in it. And in fact, I suppose one of the world experts on fibromyalgia, um, Professor Jeff Littlejohn, is also from Monash, and he's been very good at leading the way a bit and helping, I think, most of the Monash health trainees in rheumatology to really appreciate the impact, conditions like fibromyalgia, uh, and to be aware that in terms of the cost to the person, those things can often be more, like in terms Mm. of emotional, physical costs than, say, an immune or inflammatory disease. Yeah. Um, And I think the same has been recognised in inflammatory bowel diseases where there are um, many researchers and doctors who treat inflammatory bowel disease who speak about the impact of having fibromyalgia as well as the inflammatory bowel disease. And, of course, these things are interrelated. Definitely. So, yeah, I think it's really important for us to look at burden of diseases in communities rather than individual diseases, but look at okay, this is a big group of people. They've got a different uh, underlying inflammatory disease, but what do they all share? They've all got fibromyalgia. So that's just a very good example of something that's probably very, very common. And there are lots of different pathways to get fibromyalgia. It could be trauma, it could be grief, it could be illness, it could be an event in your life, it could be uh, an inflammatory disease. And so there's just, you know, so many different ways to get to that. Um, so in some ways, it's quite a big umbrella condition that if you could have an impact on it, I've often thought that you could actually have an impact on all of the things that are underneath it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a very important health concern. But because people don't appear to die of it uh, or because it, it's not a, like a, a, you know, a, a cancer or, of course, those things are more immediately frightening. Sure. And so the research does tend to be driven into those things, um, things that take the lives of children or mm-hmm. take people before their time are often the things people want to work on more so than things that cause chronic disease, uh, yeah. chronic ill health. Yeah. yeah. And you can definitely see that why that is and you can, you know, and definitely there, you know, there's no way you'd want to devalue 
the importance of those things. Mm. But the perspective you get of having a chronic illness and looking at your quality of life and thinking, you know, so I'm here, but how much can I do? How much can I live? It does make you see things in a way that, you know, trying to understand the importance of your life and and, and quality of life. Mm. It is really hard because when I when I first sort of came to think of all these things, you know, you understand objectively why, you know, the funding goes where it is. And that's why I think partially a lot of our work is in the community and how in the community we need to educate about the importance of of chronic issues because then if your day-to-day life can be better, then as the research catches up, you know, because even in your lifetime, you may not benefit from the research because it may, might take so long to affect the system. But if we can help each other in, in our community through those symptoms and those struggles that we experience that are that we all can relate to in one way or another or, or you know, are more common, then I think, it, you know, it's a way of, of helping a broader, like, quality of life of people. Mm. I would love to pause for a second. Not that I'd love to pause because I actually have a question for you as soon as we've done this, but if we can pause and play the D&M game. Sure. <laughs> I'm terrible at small talk, which is why I'm called it the D&M game, the deep and meaningful game. It's more lighthearted than what we've been talking about. We'll just pick out two questions from this hat or it's a container, a very glamorous container. So if you can pull out two questions and we'll both answer them and we'll, then we'll get back into we'll our both try to answer them. Yeah. Okay, so the first question, what's your theme song? Do you have a theme song? A theme song. Gosh, that, <laughs> that was a that's a bolt out of the blue. Um, let me think. What would I say? Well, lately I've been listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell, who I love. I love her. I just love her so much since I was young, since I was 16 or whenever, and I just think she's the most incredible poet and songwriter and musician, and I've just been listening to so many of her songs. There's so many of her songs that I could say are my theme song, but I think that song Big Yellow Taxi is good in terms of that line in it, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Just being grateful for what you actually do have, which is a great way to try and live your life. Absolutely. How about yours? My theme song at the moment, what am I listening to? I'm listening to a lot of uh, like 70s sort of soft rock Mm. at the moment. And I was listening to um, some Cat Stevens yesterday. I love my era. I I love it so much. But there is, um, it's not Cat Stevens, but there is a song, and I'm struggling to think of the name of the song. It's by Buffalo Springfield, and it's like a revolution song. And I can't remember the name. I'll think of it later. You think of it later. I'll think of it later, and I'll tell you later what it is. But do you know Buffalo Springfield? I do. I know the name, but I can't think of this revolution song. I'm trying to remember it. It'll come to me. It'll Mm. come to me and then I'll share it with you. I should be able to. Uh, The next one is what was the first concert you ever went to? Do you know yours? Yeah. What was your first? Kylie Minogue. My mum was so excited to take me she to a concert. She took you? That's so good. Kylie Minogue. Yeah. <laughs> she was so her um, showgirl tour, I'm pretty sure. I'm really struggling. I'm going back in time to think I should have gone to a concert when I was about 15 or 16 or, you know, that's when you would go to concerts, right? But I can't remember. I think I wasn't allowed to go then. And I feel like I only started going to concerts when I was, um, I don't know, late high school, sort of early university. I feel like the one that I can remember off the top of my head was, I think I came to see the church, who are like an Australian band, 
I'm not sure which state in Australia they're from. And I'm pretty sure, so I was in maybe late high school, and I'm fairly sure I came to see them here at Monash Uni. But I wasn't at Monash Uni at the time. I think I was at school. But I came to see them at Monash Uni in the above student services area, the union building, we used right. to call it. Yeah, I think that's the one I've, it's in my mind that I can remember it quite distinctly. But I must have gone to some before that. Just can't remember. <laughs> it's very worrying, the memory. Put them, fold them up? Yeah, I'll fold them up. Yeah. Um, the Buffalo Springfield song, I think it's called um, What's That Sound? Like, Hey People, What's That Sound? Oh, Hey People, What's That Sound? Yeah, I think Everybody, that's the one. something, what's going around. Yeah, yes. that one. That's yeah. the one. Or my other one at the moment would be um, What's Going On by the Four Non-Blondes. All right, I don't know that, that one. one. I'm no. not going to sing it for you. No, don't <laughs> sing it. But I might have recognised if you did sing it, I might have a chance. But All right, not today. Not today. <laughs> Um, so the question that I've had, which actually is something that I wanted to ask you about, and it's a word that's come up in just what you've been saying, I would love to hear your opinion on the word burden and how it's used as a statistical word, mm. if I'm saying that correctly. I feel like I'm not saying statistical, no. right? I guess the impacts of how it has on us living with the illness. I first heard this word when I was doing, it was another sim patient job and we had this article, this report that we were given as a bit of background and it was about the burden of of illness and the burden of disease and it really, like I hadn't come across it before. It had no reason to come across mm. it, of how it's, you know, been used and especially with someone that lives with the issues, I was really taken aback mm. because I didn't have that, I guess, I hadn't, I wasn't removed enough to see it as like a, a term it used in, in mm. research. Mm. And so I sort of for, I, for a minute had to step away from taking it to heart a little bit because one of the biggest issues when going through illness is that you feel like a burden ah. and it's so filled with emotion. It's charged. It's so emotionally charged. Mm. From your point of view of being a patient as well and then also being a medical professional, I'd just love to get your take on how we use the word mm. and where it comes from mm. and then also if we were going to swap anything in for it, if we weren't going to use it. Mm. Look, it's so interesting. As you speak about it, it makes sense. I think when we when it's used in a statistical sense or in terms of health economic burden, I guess we mean on the society as a whole in terms of the costs. A lot of those times the burden is taking into account the burden on the patient, the individual patients in terms of their work, their years of work life lost. So it does sometimes take into account the individual and the collective. So it's trying to find a way to quantify the impact of that on society as a whole by adding up all the individuals. So I don't think it's taking the individual out of it, but I think it's massing it together. And sometimes it's done as a way to try to attract funding or attract attention to something to say, this is really important. Look at the impact it has. And every single, you're right, I mean, every single white paper or every single position paper has, this has a huge health economic burden. This is this. And, and I never had thought about it in terms of the idea of, you know, potentially guilt, which I think I would definitely have experienced when I was unwell, which was the feeling of, 
I'm just a dead loss here. I'm just a blob. You know, I'm doing nothing for nobody and I hate the way this feels. Sort of, I'm helpless here Mm -hmm. and I am a burden on my family. Somebody has to drive me here and drive me there and do this for me and stop their work to help me and do these things. And I can can remember feeling some of that guilt. And so I guess it, it is a word that is emotionally charged and whether or not an individual patient with a particular condition, like say osteoarthritis, which is so common, if they thought, oh, my knee pain, you know, because I've got this thin cartilage in my knee, and they hear about the health economic burden of osteoarthritis, do they actually feel guilty about that? And should we change it for something else? Maybe we should just say the cost, the cost to the community. Because, yeah, the word burden, it's interesting. But I'd never thought that a patient listening to a radio show or something would actually feel, you know, you're talking about my illness, so I am a burden. That's a really interesting reflection that I didn't cross my mind, to be honest even though I have felt like a burden, yeah, right? I I felt like one myself and yet, but only transiently, yeah. so maybe that's why it hasn't sunk in. You don't really hear about it with acute illness, actually. It's interesting. Like I've never really heard the health economic burden of breast cancer. To be honest, you tend to hear it more about the burden of chronic disease. It's much more in the chronic disease area. So that's, that's quite interesting whether or not we should watch our language. Yeah, because I definitely have experienced feeling like a burden You're part as of a, a burden. patient before looking at it from a research point of view. Yep. And I think probably what you've looked at it as from a research point of view and then gone. So you've, mm. you've completely understood the context mm. and I think the context of it has a huge mm. impact with, with yep. the meaning that you put yes, on it. that's right. Well, the words you say are so important. So if, if you say the word burden... Mm. I mean, for a patient, a patient goes, oh, burden, that's me, I'm a burden. Yeah. They don't think of it in terms of the collective or something separate to themselves, You're perhaps. so much quicker to take it to heart yes, you as might, your own. Yes, I'm sorry for being a burden then, yeah. you know, sorry that I happen to get this chronic disease. I think the tricky thing is that there are quite a number of chronic diseases that are very, very preventable. So I think that we're maybe where some of that language is coming in. So, you know, smoking-related disease, weight-related diseases, things that relate to lack of exercise and so on, where they're really, really preventable with Mm -hmm. lifestyle factors, bearing in mind that that is also socioeconomically underpinned. You know, the whole business of living in the leafy inner suburbs and having a run and eating quinoa versus (laughs) being further out and sort of having no healthy food at hand and no beautiful leafy running tracks and the architecture of your world doesn't really make you want to actually exercise because you walk out onto a busy highway. Why would you want to walk there? So I think the way that cities are designed and so on and the socioeconomic factors affect people's ability to do the preventative stuff that stops all of that. So it makes it much harder to you know, not gain weight, to do an exercise program, to eat healthy food. And so when they're talking about burden, sometimes they're talking about those preventable things, mm-hmm. not necessarily the things that are just bad luck. It's kind of 50-50. There's just a whole lot of stuff that's just really bad luck. And there's a whole lot of other things which if we could have it, you know, we could actually change the outcomes mm-hmm. because it is to do with something that is actually preventable. Sometimes that burden word seems to be used to me in that context um, when they talk about the burden of non-communicable diseases. They mean often, you know, heart attack, stroke and diabetes-related illnesses, the rise of type 2 diabetes poor diet, smoking. So that burden word is often used there Mm -hmm. and they are often quite chronic diseases as well. And then you've got these other chronic inflammatory diseases that are nothing to do with that necessarily. They're just 
genetics plus something in the environment that we don't know and they all get mixed up together and the word burden is used, but it can be pejorative. So I think it does require some examination. I was thinking when I first came across it that, and it probably relates to the more bad luck category, although I guess if socioeconomic, if you take into a socioeconomic, that's, yeah, a big factor. But I was thinking, I was like, what if we just switched it up with the word responsibility? Mm. So rather than you being a burden, it's, you know, the the role of your system and community to support you. Like mm. what if we just use that? It was just a mm. it's probably never going to be the right word. But, you know, for example, what if we use the word responsibility? So we felt like, you know, there is this support system. Mm. It is the role of our our healthcare and our, mm. our you know, the people around us, the yeah. wider community. Yeah. You know, we're not being... You know, it's we're, we're less annoying. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's it's just a part of life. I guess if we if we lived in a world where there was a kind of a social contract to be mindful of the potential suffering of others at all times, and that was just the way we conducted ourselves, we wouldn't see somebody in pain as demanding, for example. Yeah. Or we wouldn't, which is an expression you often hear. Um, being put out. Someone's yeah. agitated and they're demanding this, you know, but maybe they wouldn't have to demand. I guess it also requires sometimes people who have illness are not always feeling comfortable to share what they're feeling as well. So folks are not mind readers. So I know this from my own experience that there'd be times when I'd be feeling not fantastic, but I would sort of expect other people to somehow intuit that. So I think it goes both ways. Yeah, I used to I, feel like, don't I have a big, you know, can't you red see my pain? My can't face? you see my pain? Uh, but but yeah. I think if we say that it's a bi-directional responsibility, you know, if somebody lets you know that things are not going well for them, like physically or emotionally, that you take it upon yourself to support that person as best you are able. Mm. Um, given your own circumstance, that is a great contract to have in society. I also think sometimes health and health systems are not the right place for some of these things to come to. Yeah, Not everything should be conceptualized in the, in the sort of medical model. And mm-hmm. there's a lot mixed into that medical model that probably shouldn't be in there. You know, there's a fantastic book called The Way We Die Now, which is really about how so many people end up in an ambulance going to hospital to die in hospital because we're so unfamiliar with what it's like to have someone die at home when in fact it's a perfectly reasonable thing for someone to die at home. And that's what people used to do. And most people were very comfortable with, they had illness close to them. They watched it closely. It happened around them and people succumbed to those illnesses around them when nothing particular could be done. And I think to some extent we live in this sort of sanitized world where healthy things happen here and if you're unhealthy, get out of here and go somewhere else. Yeah. Go into a go and consume some healthcare. I think often a lot of the time some of that healthcare doesn't need to be consumed and a different conceptualization needs to happen. And there's a lot of stuff mixed into the hospital system that just shouldn't be there and doesn't need to be there, which overburdens it and also leads to sort of poor care really because it's just so many people yeah. <laughs> needing you know, to be seen and assessed when in fact I think you're right, a lot of this stuff could be sorted out in the community with just sensible, wise you know, interactions. You know, you'll be okay, you probably don't need to go to the emergency department or you probably don't need to see a specialist, for example. There's lots of other people in the community who could help you with what you have. But that's a big shift. A really big Big one. shift. But if there's people working on this, 
there's people working on this. I think a lot of it comes down to the education of the questions that we ask mm. in support of people and helping take some of that fear away. Oh, yeah. People are really scared of people who are sick or going through something really hard and the discomfort. I think we have such a society that feels like if they can't fix anything, then oh, they yeah. need to run the other way. Yes. And how do we help yep. people understand that just being present with someone mm. Maybe, you know. That's all you need. It's so huge, mm. so huge. It is actually because I think people feel there must be a panacea. I've got to look this up and work out which person you need to see and we'll sort that out as opposed to maybe I'll just listen to you. Yeah. Maybe I'll just, doesn't matter. You know, you can just talk and I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a real fix-it mentality mm. rather than just move through it and just go with, with the person and, and listen to what they're saying and let them talk about it and don't have to do anything. I think it's one of the reasons why people find it really hard to talk about what they're going through mm. because they feel like by expressing their experience, they're putting this burden yeah, out there. <laughs> in onto the other person yeah. and out there and then creating this yeah. suggestion that the other person needs to fix them in some yeah. way. Yeah. I definitely went through this pendulum of not talking about it because you know you're strong when you don't talk about what you're going through and, and not asking for help is, is mm. what you know you need to do. And then finding out or, or sort of seeing that no one really understood when I needed them to and and so then I would talk about it too much and and make people really uncomfortable but mm. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to and and now I've come to sort of seeing that how I talk about it is more in the sense of what I need mm. than what I'm experiencing and it also helps me not stay in it as much as well. And I'm a terrible fixer. I want to fix everybody. Mm. I, I, you know, mm. I find it really hard to take that sense of responsibility over someone else's well-being and and just and tell myself I, I don't need to fix it and I can just mm. be there and be present and how do I do that better? Because I, I fall into that all the time. Yeah, I think I'm even the same. experiencing it myself. You can imagine so. me like being medically trained. It's <laughs> like, right, I've got these five possible solutions, you know, and I think medical people in general and uh, are very want to have mastery like over situations and so they you know they'll try and come up with solutions um, and often when there is no solution medicine doesn't always have solutions which is one of these things that you know particularly at the end of life or if there's something that is beyond medicine I think often we health professionals get very stumped by it and we don't know what to do which is that probably you should just listen and I think we do try to have training around things like end-of-life care or breaking bad news and things like that about just letting it be, like don't come in with advice or solutions too quickly. But it's, uh, it's hard. One of the biggest shifts I've found being a simulate, simulated patient, sim patient for a few years is the focus on the assessing their manner as well as just the technical aspects, mm. which obviously if you don't have the technical aspects, you can see you don't necessarily want that person to pass. But also if you don't have the manner, I know it, exam situations can be awful and we're not all who we really are in mm. exam situations. But I've seen a shift definitely. I think we spoke about it a little bit when someone would leave and you would ask me or, or the other examiner would ask me, you know, what did you think of them? How did, you know, how did you find them? And do you think there's been a shift 
in the education process to how you support the patient while they're they're in your appointment? Oh, completely. Uh, we've included in the assessment a sort of a what what did the sim did the sim patient have any concerns about the student's interactions? You know, did the examiner have any concerns about the way the student interacted uh, with the sim patient? Because everybody can only experience another human through their interpersonal skills and you know you have to be skilled you have to be knowledgeable you have to have the information at your fingertips but the ability to actually gain the patient's trust is very very important if you're now going to start to discuss the treatment with that patient if you don't have the patient on side and the patient's not coming on that journey with you well you can be the best diagnostician in the world but they're not going to take the treatment that you're prescribing at all um, and that's been shown very clearly. You know, and the World Health Organization has said that 50% of our patients do not even fill the script or if they fill it, they don't take the tablet. What is that about? And these are some of very effective treatments. Like They work. I, I just find it very interesting that we, we train and train and train to be so highly skilled and knowledgeable. But if you don't have this one factor, which is, is the patient coming with you? Are we on this journey sort of together? Does the patient feel that you have their best interests at heart and are you in their corner? Well, they will be very reticent to actually follow your advice. So you could be a crack diagnostician. You could have the most incredible pair of hands, you know, to resect a tumour or something. But the person who's going through the illness would need to do really well with that surgery, needs to follow your advice after the surgery or take the medication that you've prescribed for the heart failure or the diabetes or whatever. But 50% of patients don't. And yeah. it seems that one of the reasons for that that's been identified is this whole sphere is one thing. Just, oh, let's move away from this and I'll go to natural stuff where I'm not afraid. But also I think the kind of that interaction, the, the sort of strength of that interaction between the clinician, any health clinician and the patient is, um, is pretty vital in mm. terms of ensuring that the therapy itself can kind of go all the way. So, look, I think we sort of ignore it at our peril. As in, I don't really know why you'd train 18 years to become a super specialist if half your patients aren't following your advice. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. I know there's some research out there and I, I wish I knew exactly what it was called but about the placebo effect oh, yeah. and around the placebo of, of feeling supported and not feeling supported and how the body actually can start to heal itself with feeling the support of mm. the clinician yeah, and oh. how powerful it's so powerful. And well, you see it in every single trial, um, power of the mind. So placebo, which is the idea that something is helping you when there's no medical basis for it helping you. There are some placebos in some trials where the placebo arm, 40% of people respond Mm -hmm. to the placebo arm. I mean, that's a good, that's quite a good result, Yeah. right, for a sugar pill. Equally, if a patient believes that something is harmful, it will harm them. So that, you know, the nocebo effect um, is the What's opposite. What's that word? So nocebo, N-O-C-E-B-O. And there was a really fantastic paper in, in Nature Medicine about this showing that these effects are so powerful. How you frame an illness and how you frame its treatment and every single word that you use is critically important in determining, setting up the patient's belief system. And it can absolutely boost the impact of your treatment or undercut the impact of your treatment. It's just the mind at work. And there's amazing trials with 
analgesics and things that have utterly shown this. So our brains are so powerful. So we have to, I think, as clinicians, harness the brain. And I think people who do complementary therapies, you know, for example, you know, naturopaths and people who do herbal treatments and, you know, kinesiologists, they are absolutely harnessing that. They're harnessing that belief system that this will help me. And it's very, very powerful, as well as the fact that some of those things are evidence-based. So, for example, you know, acupuncture, evidence-based, um, certain natural substances, very strongly evidence-based. But even taking away the evidence, the power of the human mind to, to believe this is going to help me will provide a very powerful sense of help. Often placebo effects are not sustained, though. Mm-hmm. So in certain conditions, you'll get a a transient placebo response, but it often isn't sustained. Okay. Uh, is the, but in some, yes, but in many, no. Mm-hmm. But, yes, yeah, very, very powerful. It's an ingredient. It's, it's a, an important ingredient yeah. and we need to harness it. We need to be very, very aware of how they've shown, for example, in this particular Nature paper, they talked about how the room you're in, the lighting, what the clinician is wearing, <laughs> the language, the voice, the words they choose, so many factors, obviously factors in the patient, factors in the clinician, the team are so important. Often if there's a nurse in the clinic or a pharmacist in the clinic, the patient will feel much more comfortable. All three of these people who have my best interests at heart are all recommending this. Oh, I think I'll do it now. That's the third time I've heard this will help me and I shouldn't be afraid of this medicine. Most times people talk to me about medication and tablets and they'll say, well, but it's a chemical, you know, and and I'll say, yes, but your body's releasing chemicals that are hurting you right now. Or, you know, people will be smoking and and saying, I don't want to take that tablet. And I'll say, but you're inhaling 5,000 chemicals. This tablet's just one chemical. (laughs) You're prepared to inhale them, but not. So I think it's about just trying to find ways to educate Removing fear would have to be the biggest thing that we need to work on. Providing hope. I think there are so many conditions, not all, but many, many conditions that we can improve. We can impact on them and we need to give people hope that they can, you know, have a life and get back to a life. We have to be part of that Mm. without giving false hope. Yeah. We have to try and give hope as well as remove fear. And those two ingredients, I think, are are so important for practicing healthcare and you know, it's hard to get right and it's a sort of magic thing. It's the alchemy of the interaction. So before we wrap up, uh, you've probably covered a lot of them, but I'd love to ask you the thesis questions. Uh, so, yeah, as I as I mentioned, uh, when I say the system in these questions, I mean any like healthcare, political, community system, any sort of structure that impacts our, our health in any way. So the first question is, What do you think is good or working currently in the system? And and I think especially when we look at critiquing and building and improving, we need to look at what foundation of the system is really really working well for us. I mean, if you have a life-threatening infection, if you have a trauma, like a car accident, if you have any range of acute illnesses, I mean, I think you go to the hospital and there's a chance that your life will be saved. And cancer treatment these days is really changing. A large number of cancers that used to be fatal are not. Other areas haven't changed. So this acute care, you know, there's so many advances Um, in inflammatory diseases that I treat. There's been, I mean, a revolution. You know, when I started practicing rheumatology, people had very twisted hands and awful deformities. And nowadays there are far less of those. So a lot of these drugs really, really work. And um, there's been real change 
you know, in two decades. So that's working in the sense of applying new discoveries to healthcare. It's changing the face of disease. I mean, hepatitis C, amazing new treatment, rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of incredible treatments, other chronic diseases, less treatments available. I think the bit that's starting to work, and it's not everywhere, but there's a real recognition that we need to have multidisciplinary care teams and the fact that there are patients with voices in certain areas, but not everywhere. So Mm -hmm. I think there are some things that are starting to work in chronic disease, but we probably have a way to go. Sure. So the next question is, if you could change the system in any way, what would you change? (laughs) This might be a bit of a loaded one. It's probably something that requires such a big systems approach that it's no one place that you could address it. But I wonder whether this digital thing will change where people won't necessarily have to leave their homes to access advice and care. It might be that the patients run away with the um, digital technologies and, and they start to say, look, I can look this up at home. Maybe I'll be able to even get someone come and take my blood at home. They won't have to go inside a hospital so much. That could change things. One of the things I think that's been really problematic is the over over medicalizing things. And I, I think if we could, things like private healthcare is really expanded and I think it's increased the cost of public healthcare and it's changed a lot of behaviors in public health where you know, people see nine different doctors and there's a lot of cross-referrals and a lot of extra testing that maybe doesn't necessarily need to happen. And I think if we could just simplify care a little bit and slow it down a bit, everything's about getting people in and out of hospital very fast. And I don't think we're doing ourselves a service there because I think people are more languishing, you know, out in the community. So I think we should slow down medicine a bit and we should simplify and we should try to take as much fear as we can out of it. Mm. But I don't know how. I'm just Mm. saying that's the what I would do, but how I don't know exactly. Is there a silver lining or what has been the biggest lesson that this experience with your health has given you? Well, I think it reminded me of something I already know, which is most of the people who are in healthcare actually do care. And although you hear a lot of stories and terrible stories, awful stories of, you know, neglect and bad experiences, bad in, bad health interchanges, bad, you know, practitioners who don't care, really you just meet a lot of lovely people, really caring, warm people who are actually in it for the right reasons. And I mm-hmm. think it's like anything. It's like teaching or healthcare or anything. You know, 50% or more of people actually do want to help you and they actually care a lot. So... There's just a lot of good stories and I'd love those good stories to occasionally come out and be the norm, but definitely there's still too many bad ones. Yeah, it's a lot of horror stories. Mm. So it would be nice if we could have good news as well. (laughs) I agree. Because that tends to positively reinforce more of the best behaviour. But if you keep telling horror stories, it just causes defensive fear-based behaviours. So I think lots of positive exemplars would be wonderful to try and drive the positive cycle a bit more. That's also on the television news in every Mm. respect as well as hospital uh, incidents and things. What does quality of life mean to you? My feeling is that quality of life for me is being able to get up in the morning, move my arms and legs, take my dog for a walk, smell, see and hear everything around me, be able to stay connected to the world. I think that's what quality means to me. What do you wish people knew about your experience? Having a sickness like the breast cancer. Look, actually, because that's such a common illness, I think people have experienced way more than I have, to be honest, and it's been well expressed 
there are some incredible resources that are given to you when you get breast cancer, which just go through so many case studies of what people have experienced. And I think it's been so well documented. I think my fears would just be the ordinary ones that everyone has, you know, fear of losing a body part, fear of having terrible scars, fear of dying, usual human fears, fear of having chronic pain or something, fear of being seen differently as a result of it, fear of being somehow weak. There's a great book called Illness and Its Metaphors by Susan Sontag. She wrote one first called AIDS and Its Metaphors, I think Cancer and Its Metaphors, Illness and Its Metaphors, which is somehow the idea that you weren't strong enough, you weren't healthy enough, you weren't, you weren't I don't know, mindful enough, you weren't disciplined enough. You got sick because you're somehow defective. Not you know? enough in some way. You're not way. enough in some way. You know, you were too stressed. You know, like when I got this cancer, people said, Michelle, you work too hard. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I love my work. You know, I'm not stressed by my work. It's not that I failed to manage my stress. I just had one cell decided to go AWOL. Like there's a narrative around illness that somehow if you'd lived better or done things right, and a lot of patients say to me, well, what did I do wrong? I mean, I'm so healthy and I just don't understand this. Yeah. Like the concept of just bad luck is not something that we apply to illness. People feel they're somehow responsible for their illness. So I think that was the thing that I had a definitely a good dose of that. I thought, oh, this is why people feel this because it's actually real. When it happens to you, you think, is there anything I could have done to avoid this? What have I done wrong? And you've done nothing wrong. Just living, walking around. You're living on this earth, which means you will, you can get something. What about as a practitioner? This is not something I've been able to ask yet, but as a practitioner, is there something that you wish people knew, maybe your patients knew or about your job? I think one of the things that people may not be so aware of is that a lot of clinicians who look, you know, maybe fairly serious, you know, when you're talking to them, they are feeling sometimes for you. It's just that they're often not very good at transmitting that. Or they feel that if they transmit that, that it's a bit too boundary crossing. They're trying to maintain professional boundaries sometimes, and but they are human and they do feel. And I think a lot of the times when you you know you meet the numb practitioner, the person who doesn't seem they've got anything to give, it's actually because they have felt the pain of others and it's almost unbearable for them. Yeah. You know, so I think all humans mm -hmm. feel. It's just some people decide to shut that down and others don't. So yes, they they are human as well. Definitely not the one suffering with the disease and the malady. So, yeah. What do you wish people would say to support you? And, and I mean, I guess it's interesting talking to you now because this could mean in your experience going through illness or even, I, I guess, in your job because I don't know. I don't know if you mm. have any thoughts on that. Um, I think what you said earlier is, is right. I think there are people who you say this is going on and you've got some illness and they drive around to your house with a stack of casseroles or they send you their favourite music, or which is all completely beautiful. I mean, what I've blown away with with acute illness is the unbelievable generosity of people when you've got an acute illness. And as I said, it struck me that people with chronic illness just don't seem to get any of that because it's like people can't sustain that. Yeah, yes. It's almost like they go, well, I'm not coming around every week with music I for can't you. sign up for I that. I can't Sorry. sign up for that, So, but I can do it you know, with a shock. If you've yeah. had a shock, I'll go, oh, you poor thing, you've had a shock. Here's, here's some chocolates. When you get a chronic illness, it's a bit like I'm not going to keep coming around with casseroles for the rest yeah. of your days. Uh, so I think that's the difference. <laughs> but, <awful. laughs> yes, but the person who really um, amazed me was a, someone, uh, I do this Japanese flower arranging called Ikebana. I just started doing it about three years ago or two years ago and it's brilliant. And the person who introduced me to it, who's um, somebody who has a lot of chronic illness, heaps of chronic illness and 
I got sick and he said, oh, it must be hard, you know, and he was very empathic. And I thought, gee, that's amazing, like given all the stuff you've got going on. And he said, now, he said, are you someone who likes someone to come around and bring you food or you don't like that? What kind of person are you? And I thought, wow. That's a great question. Yeah. And he was just saying, how do you like to be helped? Oh, that's fantastic. It was so so good. And I, I put that into my examples of people who were great. Because there's a lot of people who will say things like, look, if there's anything you need, just let me know, which is lovely. That's a hard question to answer. And that's really hard. But there are other people who say, look, have a think about if there's any way I can help you and how do you like to be helped? Mm. Do you want the care pack? Do you want this? Do you want that? And I thought that's so great. Do you feel like that's more meaningful as well? Because if people say, let me know if there's anything I can do, you're not quite sure if you really can ask. Yeah. But when someone says... How? You know, how? Yeah. Have a think really and get back asking. to me. Like, how, how do you like to be helped? It was really good because it made me feel, all right, how do I like to be helped? Yeah. Uh, I had to think about that. Everyone's a bit different. So that was very good. Yeah, that mm. recognition is really important. Mm. And I wonder, we could all probably think about our own style of how, you know, how yeah. we feel supported. I think that's something that is very important too, because if just as we want other people to be mindful of the way we like to be helped, I think we have the responsibility to think about and own up to how we like to be helped. Yeah. You know, if we do like to lie under a blanket and have someone bring soup, great. And if we, someone who gets really cross, if someone does that, we need to be really clear about that and say, look, I don't like the blankets and the soup. I want to pretend everything's normal, okay? So just pretend everything's normal. Just be honest if that's what you want. So it's up to us to be clear. The sick person does have a responsibility yeah. to be clear about what they like. And it might change from day to day. Like I think there were days I wanted to be brought a gin and tonic with extra special stuff in it. <laughs> there were other days where I thought, look, I'm fine. I'm going to work. I'm a normal person. Please don't speak to me about illness today. Yeah. So it changes from day to day. I think also that comes into patient education as well because I think when you're in the thick of it, you don't even think about how to form those answers it's so hard to get see the wood through the trees mm. that to even think, you know, stop and think, oh, how do I like to be helped? Yes. It's something that I think a lot of people wouldn't think of by mm. themselves. So we can do like the education on the other side of it as well as like, hang on, you are worth thinking about. Yeah. What's yeah. your chosen way of being supported? To be helped. Well, I think in my case, I have never liked to be helped yeah. or seek help because I hate the feeling of being helpless. If I'm asking for help, that means I'm helpless, which means I'm weak. I had a real struggle to sort of say, yes, please help me. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of people. I think it's a really common thing with people going through illness as well. Like often people with illness are the first people to help others mm. and the last people to ask for help. Yes, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So my lucky last question, how has your health experience as a patient slash practitioner or clinician changed your humanness or your perspective of being a human? Mm. It's an unclear question. So. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. I think there are days when I'm not a good doctor, you know, where I'm busy, I feel stressed and I am not as mindful as I should be about the patient. I think I'm often feeling, you know, I've got nine things in my mind, I'm distracted, and I'm sure, you know, there are people that I haven't provided the care that I would like to. But I also do think, though, that I do have a good imagination and I can imagine people's situations. And my imagination is an enemy of mine, but also a friend. And I think often I will really put myself in someone's situation. I think I, I don't think I'm the most extreme empathic human, but I'm on that scale. I'm a, I think I can say, whoa, that must be hard. Oh, like I can sometimes feel it for a moment, obviously not in a sustained way. You know, I walk out of that clinic and I go, la, 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 <laughs> they have to go back to what they're experiencing. Yeah. But I think I can do it. So I think I've tried to be human, but I think 
experiencing all aspects of that person's the things that I can imagine are things that are more common, like facing death, that must be really hard. Facing disability, that must be really hard. I wouldn't like to feel that. Loss of work or family, it wouldn't like to feel that. But as we said earlier, things that I have often been a bit, I'm not dismissive of, but perhaps just thought, well, that's not that serious. Mm. You know, like fatigue would be an example. I think it's definitely made me a lot more human in that regard to sort of go, oh, yeah, that fatigue. <laughs> oh, yes, I can feel it. So, I suppose I've put this before by saying I used to be able to say I can't even begin to imagine what you're feeling and Mm -hmm. that was me trying to imagine. At least I was trying. But there are now just a few things. I can't imagine most of what my patients feel because I've never felt or gone near what they're experiencing. But I think there are little things now that I have actually truly felt, bits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can actually say, whoa, that must be hard, that I can say I can imagine a little of what you've been through. And I think that's probably how having an actual real illness, a bona fide something, albeit transient, has actually helped. This is what the patients must feel. But I'd I'd sort of already put myself a bit in their shoes, but not fully. Yeah. So I think I was just much more fully in the shoes of a patient. So it was much more, hmm, yeah, you know, they really, it's just very disconnected, this care, you know, nobody's talking to anyone and I have got to explain A to B to C and I'm actually getting top level care. Yeah. So how the heck to people in this public system feel. Yeah, and the the fact that your health, whatever you're going through, continues after you leave that doctor's yeah. office. Yeah. You don't, you know, that's right. Going. That's right. And I've got something where there is an active treatment. You can actively head towards health. I've got steps, one, two, three, to get yeah. back to good health. Whereas people with chronic disease, those steps are not as clear. What are the steps, one, two, three, to get back to good health? Um, and how long will each of those steps take? Yeah, it's been a certainly a, a very good experience, I think, for any doctor mm. to go through. And I think lots of doctors have written about this. There's a very good book a rehab doctor wrote. I think he was a rehabilitation doctor and he had a terrible accident and he himself then went through a rehab experience. And the book is very good because... I had no idea. Thank you so much. I feel like I could keep talking to you about so much more and I don't want to take too much of your time because you've been so generous. Oh, it's a very important thing to talk about. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sasha. All right, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Welcome back. So that was Professor Michelle Leach. Now, I'm pretty sure you probably picked it up and you can understand my intention because we're all friends and you definitely accept me the way that I am. But when I said under the curtain, I definitely meant behind the curtain. And that's just one of many things that I'm sure I said incorrectly, but you know what I mean. The other thing we touched on in this interview was the burden of disease and chronic disease and how that word is so, so charged and in an academic way or a political way, it sort of gets thrown around. But when you live with chronic health issues or critical health issues, whatever the case is, it really is quite emotional. And that is something I would love to work on changing. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it acknowledges the experience of people and how putting these things on paper can be quite harmful? I would love, love to change that so who knows that'll be something that we'll work on in the future and yeah maybe maybe we'll just bring some more awareness to how that is not the healthiest way to refer to people with chronic disease 
Now, also correcting myself, I did talk about songs that I loved and uh, one of them, the one by Buffalo Springfield, was called or is called For What It's Worth and the other one by The Four Non-Blondes is called What's Up. So just getting in there to actually, actually tell you what I meant. And if you're like me and wanted to write down the names of the books that she was referring to, they were called uh, Illness and Its Metaphors, AIDS and Its Metaphors, Cancer and Its Metaphors, and The Way We Die Now. But don't worry, I will have the names of the books and links to the books in the show notes. Oh, and there was uh, another book from the rehab doctor about going through rehab and I don't have the name for it right here, but I will go back and listen and add that one to the show notes as well. And that conversation that we had about uh, different ways of supporting and being supported, I just want to come back to that for a second because I think it's something that we can all meditate on, we can all think about. How do you like to be helped? What way do you like to be supported? Like uh, Professor Michelle Leach said, do you just like soup to be brought to you? Do you like someone to just sit with you? Do you want help to get the groceries or something? Do you like a care pack? You know, it's really good for us all to think about because I feel like when we are really in the weeds and we can't see the wood through the trees and it's for those times that thinking about how we like to be helped can really help us uh, when we can't communicate but we really do need support systems around us. So I just want to ask you, so you can think about it. I've got to do some thinking as well. How do you like to be helped and supported? What works for you and what makes you feel supported? I feel like often it can be about the actions, but it's also about just knowing that we have support. All right, so that is it for today. We've made it. I will see you. Uh, when's the next time I'll see you? I think I'm going to see you next in the new year. I mean, okay, just taking that in. All right, so thank you so, so much. Thank you to Professor Michelle Leach for being our guest today. And of course, give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook if you haven't already. Definitely subscribe to the podcast and download each episode when you listen, then you can get rid of it. It just really helps us. If you would like to help us keep the lights on, you can subscribe on Patreon. The perks are coming soon. Give us a five-star rating. You know, I've told you, the other stars just don't work. And I would like to give a massive thank you to Monique Egan for our super dope logo, for our super rad theme song, Sean Fox for the music, and Alex Clark of Artie Rex for the vocals. And of course, Chris Bennett for additional editing, polishing, putting the pieces together, and counselling me through putting this into the world, and just all around smashing it. This podcast is recorded on Boon Wurrung land. I will see you next week. And remember, we're all human. Yes,